Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 29th, 2018. This is episode 2,241 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, so it's an expert council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup for you today. I just want to point something out before I tell you about it. Today is June the 29th. There are 30 days in June. The next time we get together, it will be July. Yes, it will be July. We'll be heading really quick into the 4th of July, in fact, and celebrating our nation's birth. Um, but the big news to me with that is, guess what? The next time we meet, we will be halfway officially through 2018. The year will be halfway over. Do you get that? We are now closer to Christmas than we are to last year's New Year. That's where we are, like because tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. It never stops. You are either building your independence, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, your wealth, your freedom, and everything positive that you want in your life. You are either building it or life is stealing it from you. There is, there is, there is no other way for that to work. It, life is a sliding scale. And if you are not moving, then life is moving against you. That's how it works. It's not my rule. It's the rules. So think about that as we go through things today that make your life better, make the life of your children's better. Talk about saving. Talk about investing. Talk about building ways to produce your own food. All kinds of really great stuff like that. So on that, here's what we're going to be talking about today. Acquiring using wood chips with Ben Falk. Developing rootstock for a spellier with Nick Ferguson who's actually hanging out with me, doing some plumbing work for me right now. I got him employed while I'm doing the show. Uh, training young people in the ways of technology from Mike and Sue LaPreeze. Reforesting a mountain after a forest fire with Jeff Lawton. The right vehicle, not the car kind. The right vehicle is a financial vehicle for saving money uh, when it comes to your emergency funds with John Pugliano. Building up probiotics in nursing mothers with Gary Collins. And I got two for you today because one's really short. Guns to store at a hunting cabin or bug out location with me. And also I have a question on wicking beds as far as how much they do to filter water in aquaponic systems. And that's a big it depends. So we'll talk about what it depends upon in just a moment. Uh, before we get into your calls, let me just remind you real quick. This show is primarily supported through something called the Member Support Brigade. When you become a supporting member, you do not donate $50 a year to us like we're a charity and get a handbag that you could buy for a dollar at the store like PBS Broadcasting. That is not how Jack Spierko does business. I, I don't believe in things like that when it comes to running a real business. I have refused to ever take anything remotely looking like a donation in the 10 years I've done this show. I've actually had people send me, I just think it's great and I want to help support. Uh-uh, I don't do that. Value for value exchange. So when I put together the MSB, what I did is when I, when I started this show, we got it off the ground, we sold out all our sponsorships fast. And a testimony to that is that we have 12 sponsors and, and I think it's nine of them have been with us more than seven years. And when we did that, we knew we could only sell so much advertising, and I wasn't going to keep jacking up my rates. I wanted long-term partners. 
So I had all of these companies that wanted an opportunity. I sort of had this list of like 18 companies that wanted to join as advertisers. I didn't have room for. And so I came up with the MSB and said, hey, how would you like the ability to give a discount to my best people? And they said, yes, we'd like to do that, please, because they call that incremental revenue. So I, I built this program, and you get discounts, some of them really big, some small, but they're discounts exclusive to you, available 24-7, 365 on the stuff you're buying anyway. You buy into my program, you use those discounts, you get your money back. Every year, consistently, if you buy stuff in gardening, guns, cooking, you name it, we got it all. And that is the best deal that I could ever come up with. And that means that there's really no reason not to be a member if you like the show. And you can do that again for $50 a year. That's about $0.20 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth $0.20 cents an episode, you join, you support us, then you get your money back, then you make a profit. Uh, I hear from people all the time. I put two to $300 a year back into my pocket with MSP discounts. I got one guy that's running like a market garden, and the, uh, the seed discounts alone net him two to $300 positive every year by being a member of the MSB. So if you've, if you've kicked this idea around, just go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members, scroll down, look at all the companies, and just say, can I see myself using two, three, or four of these a year? And if so, boom, there you go. There's no reason not to be a member. You, you, some people, like, one guy did it. He said I, he did during the sale when I was doing 25 bucks. He put in one order with gunadapters.com, got his money back on one deal. I, that, that's the kind of thing that I try to put together. So do consider becoming a member. And remember, it gets even better if you're um, service discount uh, available. So that's military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders active due to your prior service. Email me before you join. TSPC in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. With that, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, I have a piece from Ben Falk here. This is when I reached out to everybody right before I left and got a pretty good response to the council and said, hey, if you haven't gotten a question recently, let's remind people of the cool stuff you do and let's talk about something that you're, you're using in your life right now. Well, Ben put together this piece on acquiring and using wood chips for us. I think it's just fantastic. And with that, Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Fogg with Whole Systems Design, expert counsel. Um, just uh, want to riff on um, wood chips for a minute or two or three. And um, what I'm calling wood chip terrace um, because we've started to use this approach more and more, which really is nothing very complex. It's just using a, a deep layer of organic matter. Wood chips are probably the most sensible thing where we are um, to compost on top of mainly and put your compost pile. So you want to compost, obviously, if you want to grow food at the home scale or even at other scales usually, and um, as at least plant food. Um, and you want that in zone one, and you need wood chips if you're growing perennial plants in most places that people are listening to this anyway. You need organic matter. You need mulch. Um, wood chips are a waste product in most of the United States. We have probably, I'd say, medium-level access, geographically speaking anyway. Um, probably most people in the country have better access to wood chips than we do. Um, we've managed to get maybe 200 yards delivered over the last, like, 10 years um, for mostly free. Sometimes we'll trade, um, you know, we'll, we'll bribe people with beer or weed or whatever, you know, um, to get, to get, uh, chips here. Um, you got to definitely bribe them to keep coming back, um, or give them, well, usually they like mostly Labatt's is what I found here, but, um, I've tried to give them like fruit and stuff we grow with the wood chips, but usually they don't want it. But 
you can get a lot of wood chips for free. A lot more than grow than um, making chips yourself. I've made all sorts of wood chips with $50,000 forestry chippers fed by a large excavator down to the homeowner model. You're not going to make very many chips for your time. So if you can't get chips delivered as a waste that they're dumping over the local bank as a waste product, um, you can make your own, but that's definitely a far last resort. So we get piles dumped all over. I flattened one of them out a bunch of years ago and just made a terrace with it. We put our compost piles on it. It's about 15, 18 inches deep, maybe 15 by 15 foot. It's probably about 10 yards of chips. And uh, it's so multifunctional because we're growing tons of mushrooms around it. We inoculate it with wine cap mycelium. And then we put our compost bins on top, which I'm starting to move over the years towards like a five-foot diameter hoop of half-inch hardware cloth, stack up scythings and mowings and food scraps and chicken bedding, duck bedding, whatever I have, um, and leave it in there. I generally don't turn it much. I do a slow, cold composting. And that's all on top of the wood chip terrace. So then you're rotting the chips faster underneath, and you're turning that whole 10 yards, which is going to be a real amount of soil, into soil from wood way faster than you would otherwise. It's also warmer, it's active, and it's also very insulated. So the underneath part of the compost heaps are going to work and be active much longer in our very cold climate. They'll freeze up for sure in the winter, but they're going to they're gonna have a longer active season, so more composting. Um, and then you are also keeping all that nitrogen on site. Um, right there, you're, you know, you're, you're absorbing. It's like a, a diaper, an awesome living mega diaper for all your nutrients to stay where you want them, which is not running downhill. Um, and, uh, so it's awesome. Wood chip terracing, get as many chips as you can and, uh, keep them strategically located on site and, uh, keep it multifunctional. Good luck, everyone. And any chips are good chips in my book. All chips are good chips. All organic matter is good organic matter. Now, if someone's chipping up a black walnut, uh, maybe those chips are going to take longer. But no one's really chipping black walnuts around us anyway. That's for sure. Maybe if you're in Missouri, that might happen here and there. But organic matter is good organic matter. So we're not choosy at all about the chips. Awesome stuff from Ben Falk, and what you're talking about there is basically building massive amounts of fertility for next to no money and with almost no work, and getting a byproduct of mushrooms out of it at the same time. I will say this, I, in Texas, have given up on mushrooms. I have tried inoculation of wine cap mushrooms into everything. Wicking beds, uh, swimming pools full of wood chips kept in the shade that are misted once a day, and I have, I have produced like three mushrooms. So I, I just don't think they're in my future here. Um, if they show up somewhere someday, great. Otherwise, I am off to other things. But uh, in northeastern climates, boy, that, that's 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 absolutely the case. Uh, actually, Nick Ferguson had to get some um, lava sand for a project while he was out here uh, this morning. I let him take my truck, and he stopped and talked to some uh, land, uh, no, uh, tree trimmers about dumping uh, wood chips with me. And we'll see if they come dump the wood chips with me or pay to dump them at the, the, the materials place where he was going. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I've had a hard time getting people bribe them with, with, with weed. <laughs> I am not equipped to do that, but I can see where that might actually be the way that it gets done. Uh, with that, let's move on. Speaking of Nick Ferguson, he's going to be in, in, in the area 
through today. He's, he's hanging at my place. We're going to have dinner tonight again, hang out, drink a, probably a couple more beers than we should. I uh, shoot the shit. He's out doing some plumbing work for me right now. I hired him to do while I'm, while I'm working. And uh, he's available for consultation. He'll talk about that at the beginning. And then he has uh, a piece here on developing rootstocks for espaliers. Uh, Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com with an answer to a question from Mike. But first, I wanted to let you know I am probably sitting on Jack's back porch while you're listening to this. If you're a devoted downloader who's listening the day this episode comes out, that means I'm in the DFW area and you are in luck. I'd like to do a couple mini consults while I'm in town or on my way home. So this goes out to people in anywhere around the DFW region or anywhere along the I-20 corridor between Dallas and Shreveport. I don't care if it's half an hour, 45 minutes, even an hour off of that route. Uh, just as long as I can get somewhat of a route back home. So if you have questions or want an expert opinion on something you're troubleshooting, I have a special consulting offer for you guys. Email me quick if you want to take advantage of this mini consult, because when I go home, so does the deal. It's 150 bucks for two and a half hours of my time on your property for design or consulting work. So send an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. It's first come, first serve. All right, Mike's email reads... Rooting fruit trees to whips for espalier on wood fence. Details. I'm in the DFW area and have two Santa Rosa plum, Granny Smith apple, and Bosque pear trees. I'm putting up an eight-foot cedar fence with metal posts and want to espalier trees up the posts and along the runners. How would I root cuttings from existing trees to create whips optimal for espalier? I have irrigation available for planting and it will be in a zone two or does this just sound like a bad idea all around? Thanks for your time, Mike. Espalier is growing flat on a fence. I think it's a good idea, but rooting whips from your trees is a bad idea. And I may be nitpicking the terminology, but I want to make sure that I'm conveying exactly what I intend and that none of the listeners misunderstand what I'm advising because I don't want you to go think I said to do something and it's completely opposite of what I really meant. So I'm going to be a little bit nitpicky. I would not do a traditional espalier, which is a formal, very symmetrical, it has lateral cordons. Normally, uh, they are, uh, there's like two or three cordons. They are exactly the same length. They have nearly opposing branches uh, to the left and the right from the main stem. It's a lot of maintenance. It's very formal. It's a lot of work. It's hard to keep it looking and working right. If you're good at it, you can make it beautiful and it's fantastic. When you really know what you're doing, a traditional espalier, like I described earlier, combined with a spur-bearing apple cultivar can be a highly productive and beautiful way to grow apples. But if you're just getting into this as a newbie and you want to make it easier to get some good, easy wins, then I personally would suggest you go with a fan form of espalier. That's what I would do if it were me. And I know a little bit about this stuff. So... I would personally do a fan form. You can find pretty much all you need to know about pruning and training in the American Horticultural Society Pruning and Training. I have a link on my website under uh, products, I think. Yeah, under products. To that book if you want to double check and make sure. Um, so here's why I suggest the fan tree form. 
it'll work with most any type of fruit tree you want to grow. Apples, pears, peaches, plums, cherry fig, pomegranate, etc. Pretty much every freaking thing works with that fan form. The the traditional espalier, plums and cherries, most of those stone fruits do not work well with it. So just about any woody fruit tree will do well and produce well with that fan pruning regime. So if you're going to learn one method, learn the fan form, implement it, learn it well, and then when you get really good at pruning and you can <laughs> branch out <laughs> a little into other methods for your other fruit trees, um, then, then you know, have have fun. Go after it, you know. If you want to make additional fruit trees, then I'd suggest you get appropriate dwarfing rootstock for your area and for each of your fruit types and learn how to graft. Or since you're going to be growing more ornamentally and flat against the fence, you might want to consider grafting multiple cultivars to each one of those rootstocks. And I would definitely suggest full dwarfing rootstocks because you want to keep them small. Dwarfing rootstocks make it easier to keep them small. You could literally make a perfectly balanced apple espalier, the you know traditional kind, by chip budding apple growth buds, four different apple cultivars onto the same single apple rootstock whip, and chip bud them just opposite of each other, and you could make it just beautiful and just perfect. Or you could fan form, have your two lateral forks coming up from the main trunk that fork. Each, so you have four main branches. Each one of those branches could be a different cultivar. And you could have four different types of apples growing on one fan form like that. Same goes with any of the other fruit cultivars. How cool would it be to have one fan plum tree with four types of plum on each plum tree for a total of eight different plums in the backyard growing on just two plum trees? I think that'd be pretty cool. Talk about saving space. So now let's get back to growing along the fence a bit. I want to caution you on a couple items well worth covering. Airflow and weight are two major considerations that would concern me. I don't want you to grow these trees for the next 10 years only to have them start pulling the fence over due to weight. They can get pretty dang heavy, especially when they're loaded with fruit. So were it me, I would... Either beef up the fence, add some strong H-braces to either end, and use five or so strands of high-tensile galvanized wire about six inches away from the fence to attach the fruit tree branches to. This way, your weight will not be as much on the fence itself, but more on the trellis system for the fruit trees. If you get them off of the fence enough that some air can flow between the leaves and the fence, you'll have less disease issues. Also, make sure your yard sprinklers aren't spraying the fruit trees. That's just an aside. It just popped into my head. They don't like to have their leaves sprayed all the time. Humidity like that can foster disease issues. So um, I guess to summarize, I would build a trellis with three to five strands of that high tensile galvanized wire offset from the fence for over for airflow and to prevent the fruit trees from pulling the fence down. However, if you want to risk it, you can simply attach the wire to the opposite side of the vertical fence posts, um, leaving about three and a half inches between the fence boards and the posts. So if, you, if you're picturing it in your mind, uh, if the fence boards are facing away from where you would be and they're attached to the far side of the fence, so what you're looking at is, kind of like the back side of the fence where you can see all of the the 
vertical posts and the horizontal support boards. So on that side, if you bump those wires up against it, you should have three and a half inches, assuming you're using four by four posts, between the fence boards and the posts. I prefer to see more like six to eight inches of space to make the maintenance easier and for additional airflow. But some people say two inches is all that's needed. I would personally go with more of the six to eight inches, but hey, do what you want. I would also buy appropriate dwarfing rootstock for each of your species of fruit, apple, plum, pear, rootstock, etc. You can probably find good cultivar recommendations for your soil type and disease issues locally from your ag extension agency. I'm a fan of the fan form for all the fruits. And there is a great book that I mentioned earlier called the American Horticultural Society Pruning and Training. I have it linked on my website so you can find it and make sure that you have the book that I'm actually recommending. Um, and there's another one there. Um, Michael, I can't remember his last name. Great book. I just, I forget names. The Holistic Orchard. You can find those recommendations at my website under the products tab. The direct URL is www.homegrownliberty.com forward slash products. And as of now, I think there are three things up there, three products up there. So I'm stingy with recommendations to say the least. Um, and remember, I'm probably at Jack's eating some steaks and scratching Charlie who absolutely does not like me at all. He just, he hates me. For some reason, Charlie just can't stand me. Ask Jack about it. And of course, I'll be doing a bit of consulting while I'm in town. So if you're interested, I'm doing an extra special discount on consulting. Just shoot an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Thanks for the great questions. Do good things. All right, next up I have a question for Mike and Sue LaPrise who talk about all things parenting and homeschooling and, and childhood education and things like that, empowering young people. On the right timeline for the introduction of various technological skills for children. Mike, Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue LaPrise with HaloBySue.com. Designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, hey Jack, hey TSP community, Today's question comes from Josh, and Josh asks, At what age would it be appropriate to start implementing technology into our kids' daily routine? Any specific tasks, programs, or apps to do this with? Details. My wife and I are just starting out with our 7-year-old daughter homeschooling, with our 4-year-old daughter right behind her. So far, we've drastically limited the amount of screen time they get each day. We know that technology is the future, but also can't help but notice the amount of kids these days that can't really function without their screens close by. Any advice would be much appreciated. So appropriate technology for the age, each age group. It's um, really important. You can check online, look up your kids' age, and see what the professionals are saying about that. And look at it, you know, it's like anything else, look at a couple different sites to kind of see where you want to fit your kid into that. But the most important thing is developing a very adjustable pattern to how you use technology and how you include discipline in your technology. So at our house, the discipline part we're going to cover first. We have a calendar on the wall, and when you misuse technology, you lose a day. If you repeat that misuse, you're going to lose a week. 
And that's like zero fun technology. And I put it on the calendar because we have multiple kids, and I always forget what I told them. So we write it down. And then if anybody asks me, do I get technology today, and they haven't looked on the calendar, they get an extra day because they can know that without asking me. So that's part of the pattern we've developed over the years that works really, really well. Nobody asks me. They go look at the calendar. They don't ask until it's their day to use it again. So one of the other things that comes into play for time for us is outside versus inside time. So, And that depends on the part of the year. So when we're talking about developing a calendar or developing patterns, uh, I'll give you an example. In March, we swim midday because it's warmer midday. In the mornings, it's a little cool. In the evenings, it can be a little cool. So normally in March, we're swimming midday. This time of year, we're swimming early in the morning and then in the evening. So we'll swim maybe until 9 to 11 11 in the morning. And then after 4, 5 o'clock in the evening, because midday it's just it's it's going to be over 100 and it's scorching and you're going to get burnt. And so for us, in the wintertime, it's a different schedule. In in the spring and summer, it's a different schedule. So for us, inside time is really, like right now this time of year, inside time for us is 11 to 5. And and so we adjust our time schedule as the year goes by and we adjust how we uh, address Technology. Yeah, and so the pattern of that goes slowly. It's not like we change right away. It's like it's a little warm, it's a little hotter. And so the technology time changes. And the kids know, they kind of know that pattern. It has a really comfortable feel to it. And the next thing is breaking it out not by time, but by what kind of technology. Is it learning? Is it entertainment? Or is it wasted time? Yeah, like an hour later, I'm still playing solitaire. Yeah. So recently, we've been watching the Hawaii volcano in the morning. Um, The kids pull up YouTube. We watch USGS. I am not a nerd, but this has really been fun for me. We've learned about tectonic plates and, you know, all kinds of things, patterns of the earth shifting. And we have a map in front of our TV. Our TVs are connected to computers. We don't have um, cable. We just use the Internet. And so that led to, I watched Pacific Rim with my son. He was quite thrilled. Two Pacific Rims. Are there two, I think? Yes. Yeah. So the learning versus the entertainment, there's a huge difference in um, how much time we allow for each of those. Yes. Most of their learning is is done technology-wise. And so a lot of the entertainment is not. Um, And then you were asking about apps, and that's a key key thing to think about. And I would stop by saying this. Jack says, and I'm going to quote him here, always be frugal, never be cheap. And that applies to apps, especially education apps. There are great free education apps. We've mentioned before Khan Academy. You can use it for, for math and biology. And the math pot is really fantastic, and there are games that the kids can play on it. It's just a great program. It's free, but somebody's dumped millions of dollars, in, like Bill Gates dumped millions of dollars into it, so it's a great app. But other apps that you're playing that are free, if they're frustrating educational apps, you're going to want to be really careful. If they're gaming apps, let your kid figure that out on them, the, their own. That's fine. But you don't want them to hate reading because you got a cheap reading app. So, like, ABC Mouse is a really good one for little kids. And there's a little bit of money involved in, in buying it. Yeah. It's not that much. It's like, no, $10 a month. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked at the advancements in technology, and it's, I think this is one of the things that we have to focus on. The world is changing. 
And technology changes. I mean, technology was the Gutenberg press. Yeah, and so the farmer said to his son, quit reading that book. You should not be wasting your time reading. You should get up and do something. So we went from the Gutenberg press, where now all of a sudden lots of people were reading, became available to everybody, to the age of radio. right? And then from the age of radio to the age of television. And from the age of television to the age of www. We're watching the volcano live. We're watching the volcano live. Yeah. Right. And so, www. Yeah, my dad, when that first started appearing on billboards, he said, oh, it's just a fad. It's just a silly, silly thing. And he was partially right because you never see www on bulletin boards anymore because we all know that now. Yes. So my technology, obviously that's my background. So I've started off years ago using mainframes. I went from mainframes to... Um, desktops to the luggables, the compact luggables to iPads to iPhones, and who knows what the next technology is, right? I mean, now we have the the, the iWatch, right? The Apple Watch, and there's going to be other technologies coming as well. Yeah, Dick Tracy's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, and so um, keep that in mind. Technology is constantly changing. Be aware of that. And then the next thing that we would talk about is age and behavior and interaction. Yes. So supervision is really important for every kid's difference. So we have one kid who's terrified of Once Upon a Time, the TV series about the fairy tales, but he loves Pacific Rim, which I think is much scarier. And so just being aware of that and helping the other siblings in the house understand that you know, you, the 10-year-old can't watch this when the 5-year-old's around. Those are some really important things. We try to limit the use of headphones to, like, math or reading applications because we want to hear what they're doing. We keep our TVs and screens facing out into the room, so if we're walking by, we can see them. So there's not hiding. There's, kids are still going to hide. They're going to lie. That's what they do. Um, <laughs> So being careful of the siblings. And your younger, you know, your older sibling at five probably didn't do any technology, but your five-year-old when the older one's ten is going to be doing a lot more technology, and that's okay. That's just kind of the way families work. One of the things, scientific, um, an hour before bedtime, no technology. Yeah. The sciences doctors have looked at that, and kids who are looking at a screen an hour before bedtime, it messes with their sleep cycle. Yes, yeah, so straighten your room, read, do some read-aloud to the kids, things that Let are fun. Read, yes, yeah. when they get older and they can read themselves, what our kids do the last hour is they get to sit on their bed, read a book, do that stuff. And also, monitor the type of games. You'll notice that some kids... Uh, some games will, will create uh, negative behavior. Yeah, mostly boys. Some yeah. boys can get a little bit violent when they're playing violent games and hit people. And if my kids can't manage that on their own, then they're grounded from specific games just yeah. until and, they get a little older. And, and we had some games that we just said, they're out the door. Yeah, yeah. none. Um, but the great thing about technology is it's ease. It reduces clutter. Oh, yeah. And it is so convenient. Oh, my gosh. So when we started homeschooling, we went to the library all the time and paid a lot of money in late fees. Um, I, one time I got to the library, we'd gone on vacation, I'd forgotten. It was like 180 bucks. And I'm looking at this girl, and she said, let's just call it 20 bucks." And I was like, thank you, thank you. So I spent a lot of money at the library because, you know, we had a lot of kids and books got lost. And then we got Amazon, and it was so amazing. In a couple days, the book I wanted would be here. And now there's Kindle. And I say, I would like to listen to The Three Musketeers on Audible, and 
There it is. So you have Kindle, but yeah. I, have, I use Audible. I do too now. Yeah. So it's yeah. um, great. And when you go on vacation, I read the in- Game of Thrones without having to take this huge book with me. And one of my favorite apps, it has Dr. Seuss books on it. It's called Ocean House Media. And it's one of those books that, um, digital books where you can read it yourself. It will read the whole thing to you. Or you can read it and touch the word that you don't know, and it'll only help you with the words you don't know. You just, when you need help, it's just a sweet app for beginning readers. Yeah, Ocean House Media is, is excellent. And the other thing with technology, we use it as a reward. It's a great reward. It's a great reward. Yeah. So we uh, we we mix uh, the rewards. We mix also with family time. We watch movies together, but we also <clears throat> technology. We play board games. Yeah. And modern can. board games. Yes. So with our kids, we play the Settlers of Catan, or we play Ticket to Ride, or we play Yahtzee or Sorry. And yeah. Stuff. We've got wild crafting <clears throat> and um, some fun stuff. Yeah. So don't forget that there's other things besides TV and video and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then there's also reading aloud to kids. They love it. They when they they can read aloud to you. Don't forget those things. Well, one of the great things with technology for us is we have two sons who live in different cities, and they game together a couple of times a week. So they when they when they're with us, they talk about that they're hanging out together playing games because they're talking to one another through the game apps. Yeah, and we have a friend whose son's in the Navy and their 11-year-old is at home and the older brother calls and he reads out loud to him at night like Lord of the Rings. And yeah, through FaceTime. Yeah, they FaceTime really cool. and read. So, so enjoy technology and use it for what it does really well and be really careful to not spend a lot of wasted time on it. Yeah, so I would say... A lot of time learning. Yeah. A, an okay amount of time entertainment. Try not to have any wasted time. Yeah. Yep. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com for the Expert Council. Back to you, Jack. Some things I will agree with slash add. One of the things that my wife's been really good about with our grandson, and you know, especially as she gets a little bit older, we will be more tight on this with our granddaughter, is time limits with technology. So... We're not so much talking about technology that's empowering technology for education here or for getting things done, but technology that kids use for amusement. So, you know, we'll we'll hand the granddaughter a a tablet or a phone and let her watch YouTube music videos of One Little Finger and all this other crazy stuff um, so that, like, my wife can, like, get something done like during the day or take a shower or something. Uh, But as she gets older, she'll move more to a schedule like uh, Braylon has, which is... Uh, okay, the alarm went off, go play baseball, or what have you. And I, I just think that it's really important to never see technology versus technology skills versus hard skills as an either-or. They, they are an equivalent also in necessity to be a well-rounded person. Um, I do see people who are, I think, so anti-technology, you, you, don't, you don't really get it. Like, you need your kids to be learning how to use all this stuff because everything we do in the future is going to be based on it. We live in an age where, in some ways, email's an outdated technology. It's old bastards like me that insist on using it now. Like, workplaces are running more on things like Slack than email now. Uh, MeWe, which, which sees itself as the alternative to Facebook, has an enterprise platform that basically replaces email and 
in, in intranet technology by using the MeWe social media platform, and that way there's a record of everything and all team interactions. And it can be completely encrypted end to end. They sell that as a, a premium service that people pay money for. And, and to me, that's a very strategically brilliant way to do things because if you have young people coming into a workforce that are familiar with things like Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that and Foursquare and everything else, it's, it's intuitive and second nature for them to use a platform like that. And now they're interacting. So we need to absolutely be building technological skills. When I started in the professional world as going into sales and marketing and things like that 25 years ago, you put on your resume that you were good at PowerPoint. Today, I, I don't know if people even bother. Like To me, like today, if you're going to say you're in sales, I don't need to know that you know how PowerPoint works. I assume that you do. Because kids are using PowerPoint, you know, in 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 like fifth grade to do uh, presentations. So that's it, it, I know that seems like a little thing, but if you really think about that, like the old school resumes we're talking about from 20 years ago, proficiency in Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint was a selling point for a candidate. Today, it's like I don't even I don't even want to know that. Like the fact that you think I need to know that actually lessens your value to me. And so we need to be building up these tech set and this tech savviness in our youth. But we also, like, here's how you make a fire. Here's how you fix a broken pipe. Because it amazes me what a 19-year-old kid can't do. Like, it amazes me that, like, I've had young people work with me that I had to explain what a ratchet was. Not, not just how to use one. This is a ratchet. This is why you would want something like a ratchet. Hold on a second, folks, while I get rid of this dog. I got rid of Lucy Lou. Uh, anyway, just, I mean, my, my takeaway from this is always try to balance that uh, and encourage the technology and the hard skills because I have had, you know, 19-year-old kids that you have to teach them what a ratchet is, what a, you know, what the difference between a screwdriver and a Phillips screwdriver is, why you would want an extension for a socket, why you might need an extension for a socket for one thing and a deep socket for something else and actually had them struggle with the concept, even when it's being explained, because it was so foreign to them. And we, we can't continue to raise people this way. And it's not their fault. It's our fault. It's our fault. If you know how to work a ratchet, and your 15-year-old son does not know how to work a ratchet, it is not your son's fault. It is your fault. Because you had the knowledge, they didn't, And you didn't encourage it, give it to them, whatever. And it doesn't always have to be teaching. It can be creating the environment for learning. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to make ramps for my bicycle. My grandfather said, there's a saw, there's a hammer, there's nails. Go figure it out. And when I busted my knee, since I didn't need to go to the hospital, it hurt. My grandmother came out, sprayed some crap on it, and said, get back on your bike and figure this out and don't hurt yourself again. We need to recapture some of that, folks, but not at the expense of learning the tech. Good stuff from Mike and Sue. Let's move on. Uh, now I have a question on reforesting the side of a mountain that was burned out about five years ago in a major forest fire for Jeff Lawton. Hey, this is Jeff Lawton coming to you from Australia. And uh, we have a question here from Lauren. And um, it's in relation to a mountain that Lauren wants to reforest. And it's had a, um, a wildfire go through about five years ago. Um, it's about 160 acres, and it's really the, the face of a mountain. 
and uh, Lauren's included a photo for me to have a look at. Um, it's in um, East Idaho, uh, USDA Zone 4B. Uh, previous trees uh, on the mountain were west, uh, western juniper, and the slopes are 10 degrees to 50 degrees, so it goes from reasonable slope to very steep. Um, there's no running water on the mountain, um, and they get about 14 inches of precipitation annually. And um, uh, Lauren's hoping that it could influence the local irrigation company, and they might reintroduce beavers, uh, which were pre- uh, previously trapped out. And there's a lot of work going on with beavers, and there's going to be more all the time. Um, so um, uh, this is a bit tricky. I don't think you're going to get too many beavers on this steep mountainside um, because it's probably never going to have permanent flowing water. It's just a little bit too steep. You've got a top on this mountain that's like it's got a kind of flat-ish top. The shallow slope's right on the top. So you could put a plateau wedge swale right up the top and the spillway for that plateau wedge swale, that'll pick up all the precipitation up, up the top and uh, when there's any mountain mists or anything there's always a little bit more of not just rain but uh, uh, condensation and mist up the top uh, that'll pick up uh, a bit of extra moisture and the overflow point can direct towards the valley on the side of the mountain there's a valley top there um, and it can d- direct water down there so uh, reforesting when it rains so you've got to put the earthworks in uh, be ready to plant have all your trees ready or your seed balls ready if you're going to clay ball seed you can put them in prior to rain, uh, but it, otherwise you're waiting for rain to put uh, masses of seeds in or masses of small uh, seedlings in. And you want to overplant everything every time if you can. So it's kind of a, a um, Mark Shepard type stun planting, strategic, total, utter neglect. Overplant the numbers, let them thin themselves out. Um, so from that top plateau edge swell, which is right at the top of the hill, just picking up rain and mist, overflow down the valley and uh, top of the valley and every, every section where there's a bit of a slightly flatter spot you put in rock gabion type little barrage dams you can build them yourself they can just be one one dap, one one rock barrages and you come on down that slope of the valley and any other smaller valley features and you just put in little rock gabion barrage dams build them by hand until you get lower and lower in the system and all the time you're soaking water and trapping it now you can put little tiny diversion drains into those barrage dams you can actually um, dig them by hand um, just f- dropping at no steeper than 300 to 1 or, 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 or less steep than that if you can um, you can put little stone rock wall um, barriers coming slightly downhill towards these little barrage dam gabions and you repeat that all the way down the valley features till you get near the bottom where you might still be into um, larger gabions so they increase in size all the way down each one will build a little silt field behind it which will end up being like a sponge now when you get into the very bottom it looks like you can either put a little dam or if the soil geology is not right with enough clay you put still put in a gabion and then run that off to a swale around the bottom of 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 the mountainside slope where it's less steep and then that silt field will be larger of course that all the silt fields will get larger coming down the valley feature um, and eventually the, the largest one can back flood 
up the swale prior to overflowing the gabion itself. So it becomes like a shock absorber to the impact flows of larger rains and takes the water out sideways, soaks it in, takes some of the pressure off the main flow before the overflow occurs. Now, in this photograph, it looks like it's only going to happen at the bottom, that you're going to have that larger swale with an impact back flood swale feature acting like a shock absorber. Now that then leaves all the other steeper slopes across the mountain. Uh, anywhere you can get that valley feature, gabion, increase, gabion after gabion, increasing size down the hill, building silt field after silt field, getting larger, do it if you can. Now all the way across the rest of the steep slope, it's really a net and pan recovery system. So you get out there starting at the top and you put your little net and pan boomerangs in. They're tiny little, um, they're sort of boomerang shaped little swells that connect with diversion drains like a net across the slope. Each one gets a hardy pioneer tree planted in the, in the base. So it's almost like, they're almost like little boomerang dam walls as a planning site for a tree connected with a diversion drain to the two net uh, pans uphill. So you're going to have to look up a net and pan recovery planting system. And I would definitely start at the top because as you trap water at the top, it soaks in at the top and then slowly distributes downhill, making tree planting more and more successful as you go down. So there's a, a, a way you can work your way across the slope. And it really is a top-down approach. You have to start at the top trapping water um, because it just gets easier and easier as you go downhill because you're building soakage uphill and increasing the distribution time downhill so you're you're extending the 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 entropy so you're you're slowing the entropic loss of of water in the system so coming downhill net and pan after net and pan after net and pan all the way through the steep sections until you get to that sort of at least 20 degrees 18 degrees and less where you can start to potentially put in swales and put tree lines and soakages and higher quality uh, features. And um, sounds like a lot of work, but as you see, it's starting to work at the top coming down. You're encouraged, and, and, and the regen happens faster as the soakage is retained over time above you. Um, great little project. If you can train people while you're doing it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to learn how to do. And whatever you do, um, record it. If you can, put a time-lapse camera up that's sort of security locked in a steel box or something. Um, and you can get good time-lapse cameras that switch off at night and run all day, taking a shot every day or a shot every hour or two, and then show that over time. If not, take photos at the same position all the time. And if you've got regular spots, you can take regular photos. Um, Time-lapse in this will really show the results of what you're doing. Of course, this all goes without saying that you've got to keep domestic stock off this while you do it. And you might be able to bring some back later when it's totally stable and manage it very carefully. But you've got to take uh, domestic stock off it so they're not eating all your little trees. So if you've got goats, um, you've got a problem. If you've got wild cattle wandering around, you've got a problem. Um, you might have a problem if you've got a lot of deer. Um, 
you might have to you know have distraction techniques or um, techniques to, to, to hold them out of plannings. Um, there are different things you can do there. But generally, this is quite achievable and a wonderful thing to do for your area. So I hope that helps. All right, next up I have a uh, question for John Pugliano. You hear John and I harp on certain rules of saving investing, a tenth of your money, uh, put aside for your future, smart investing, not just accepting the fact that you're going to lose money every 10 years in the stock market, uh, and then common sense things like emergency funds and basic savings accounts and stuff like that. So, But when you say that, I think a lot of people say, well, Where exactly or how exactly should I save cash or money or assets that are to be allocated as an emergency fund? With that in mind, John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today our financial question comes from Alicia, and she asks, what is the best way to save or invest an emergency fund? She goes on to say that her and her husband are saving their money for an emergency fund. They want to put away three to six months of replacement income, and she wonders where they should put it. Now, I'm going to answer her question, and along the way, hopefully I want to address a lot of your other questions where you've asked that standard thing of, hey, where's just a safe place to save my money? Or what should I do if I want to safely save five to $10,000 over the next year? Or what about these online banking accounts that I hear about? They're paying so much more interest than my local bank account. Can I trust them? Well, those are the questions I'm going to try and address today. Before I get into all that, though, I do want to have you maybe frame your thoughts a little differently. And I say this because everybody is focused on an emergency fund. And while I don't think that's a bad idea, I just encourage you to not only think in terms of saving up for an emergency, but think in terms of the way my parents and my grandparents thought, which was just about saving. You know, I never really remember hearing my grandparents talk about having an emergency fund. Oh, they may have used the phrase of saving for a rainy day or something like that. But just in general, they weren't putting their money aside for an emergency. They were just saving for life. They were saving for their future expenses. Now, that may have included things like health care or their retirement. And it definitely included saving up for emergencies. But that wasn't the only reason they were saving their money. They were saving their money for all the future purchases they were going to make. It never would occur to them to use something like credit card debt to fund a future purchase. And it didn't matter whether that future purchase was buying an automobile or going on vacation or going out to dinner. You know, they just didn't make any purchases unless they had the cash on hand to buy it. Other than having something like a mortgage, they would just never, ever conceive of using debt to buy something. And I bring this up because I think... It's important for people to, to reframe the way they think about their overall savings. And if you do that, hopefully you'll avoid getting into debt to begin with. You'll avoid the student loan debt. You'll avoid the credit card debt because debt is a trap. It is slavery. And once you get into it, it gets harder and harder to get out of. The other reason I bring this up is because if you change the way you think about money, I believe that you'll find out that the concept of building wealth and saving and investing, it's not as hard as it's made out to be. And that rather than worrying about what investment vehicle you should be using or how much interest you can get or what type of compounded interest rate you can put in your spreadsheet to project your future wealth, you know, people get all wrapped up in that. And I got to tell you, I don't think it matters that much. 
My life experiences have taught me that the most important thing that you can do to build your wealth is learn how to earn an income and have the discipline not to spend it. And if you can wrap your head around those two concepts and focus on the earning and the saving side of things, then over time, the investing kind of works itself out. And when you break things down into simplicity, the best place you should be saving and putting your money is in a bank account. And whether you use your local name brand bank down the street or whether it's a credit union or whether it's an online banking establishment, as long as that bank is FDIC insured, then your deposits are going to be safe for at least $250,000, in some cases a lot more than that, and you shouldn't worry about it. You shouldn't worry about things like bank bail-ins because they're not going to happen in the United States. And I think to a larger degree, you really shouldn't even care about what interest rate you get. You're going to have two forms of accounts. You're going to open up a checking account and a savings account. The checking account, as the name implies, is where you can write checks from. It's also where you're going to have your debit card tied to. And these are for making your quick withdrawals. And you may or may not make any interest on that money, but it doesn't matter because you're not going to have a lot of money in that account. You have your paycheck direct deposited in your checking account, and then you spend that money down every month. Oh, sure, you're going to leave a couple thousand dollars in there just for budgeting purposes to cover your monthly cash flow payments, but you're not going to be keeping $100,000 in your checking account, right? You're just going to be keeping the money in your checking account that you need to be funding your day-to-day purchases. The excess money you're saving, and whether you're saving up for a vacation or a new car, or you want to buy a boat, or you're saving for the down payment on your home, or it's your emergency fund or whatever it is, you're just taking that excess money that you didn't spend this month and you're transferring that over to your savings account. And you just let that balance start to grow. And think of it in these terms. In your wallet, you're going to carry around a couple hundred dollars, right? That's money that you need on a daily basis to purchase things. And then in your checking account, well, that's probably going to have a few thousand dollars in it because that's where you're going to pay your rent or your mortgage from and the amounts have to be larger. And then in your savings account, well, that's going to have even larger amounts of money. Maybe you're going to have five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars in there. And just a regular old savings bank account is the best place to put, say, five to twenty thousand dollars. It's safe. It's federally insured. It's there when you need it. And whether it's an online banking account or a credit union or whether it's Chase or American Express, it really doesn't matter as long as it's a U.S. bank and the account is covered by FDIC insurance. That's all that matters. You don't have to worry about bank bail-ins. You don't have to worry about that bank going out of business. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because even if that bank were to fail, the deposits are insured for a minimum of $250,000. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. It can be even more than that. Now, as far as interest rates, some banks pay more than others. It's usually used as a marketing tool, though, so that the banks can accumulate assets. Right now, Goldman Sachs is paying 1.8%. Or you can go to a website like bankrates.com and see what the highest interest rate at the time is. They're always fluctuating. The reason these banks do this is to attract more deposits in their accounts. In a lot of cases, these are tickler rates. They're not always going to stay that high. But yes, as long as the bank is FDIC insured, it's safe. The question is, is it convenient? From what I've been hearing about the Goldman Sachs Bank, no, it's not convenient. They don't have a mobile app. They apparently have some pretty poor customer service. 
you know, when you call them up on the phone, you're, you're not going to talk to a live human being or you're going to have to wait a long time to, to do that if you, if you can. There's no local branch offices that you can walk into and talk to somebody. You know, if I would switch to Goldman Sachs, I might make maybe one and a half percent more interest than I'm making with my local bank. On $10,000 over a 12-month period, that's going to be, what, maybe $150? For me, it's just not worth the inconvenience. But that's just the world we live in right now with these very low interest rates. In the future, if interest rates continue to rise and they get substantially higher, then it may make sense to do things differently. You know, back in the old days, we used to do what was called laddering CDs. Just like Jack and Steve Harris talk about filling and rotating your gas cans, you'd do the same thing with a CD. You could rotate these CDs on a monthly or a quarterly or yearly basis, where, for example, if you wanted to do it quarterly and you had $10,000 in your savings account, every three months you could have a CD set up so that $2,500 would roll over and get reinvested, and so that way you never had to wait longer than 90 days to have your $2,500 mature. And as long as it was in a CD, it was being paid a substantially higher interest rate than if it was just in a checking account. But again, that was back when interest rates were much higher than they are today. Unless you're talking about a substantial amount of money, it really, in my opinion, isn't worth chasing these rates. Well, there you have it. That's just my opinion. I encourage people to take a simple approach. Don't worry so much about the interest rate or how you're going to invest it. Simply learn to save the money and keep it where it's safe in an FDIC-insured bank account. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So it, listening to the question and then listening to John's response, I, I've realized something that John and I, I think, both have failed to convey over the years. And he didn't directly say it here, though he did ind indirectly say it. And that is that an actual emergency fund is a stopgap measure that ceases to be necessary once one develops sufficient savings. So what do I mean by that? So I am, as I've said many times on the show and have been saying for 10 years now, a big fan of Dave Ramsey's advice for debt elimination and day-to-day -day money management. I think his overall investing advice is the advice of a fool, which is just throw 10% of your money into mutual funds in the stock market and don't worry about it. That is, that is just an asinine way to invest. It, it basically guarantees you that you'll have major losses to your investments every five to eight years. That, that's, it's a basic guarantee of that. Instead of let's, let's do the, let's do pretty much the same thing. But let's pay attention, and when there are clear indicators that we are about to go through a major bloodletting, let's at least protect some of our profits and have them ready to take advantage of the bloodletting. Okay? Um, so I, I kind of bifurcate between the two, but I am a huge fan of day-to-day -day money management, using cash for payments, especially when you're developing discipline on your spending side, uh, the debt elimination philosophy, and the emergency fund, $1,000 emergency fund. Uh, I, I have taken that directly from... Dave Ramsey, where is the place in time? What is the timing behind this? The $1,000 emergency fund is for people who don't have any significant savings. And they do have significant debt. And it's the prevention of derailment from debt elimination. So let's say we have a guy named Joe. And Joe owes eighteen grand in total uh, debt. He's got some like seven grand of student loan debt. He's got a credit card loan. He's got a department store loan. He's got a, a, a small car loan or something like that on a used car. And he's not too bad. And he owes about eighteen grand. 
He has very little in the way of savings. He wants to get on the train to eliminate debt. So we take all the extra money that we can and we channel it toward the biggest debt and we start blowing the debt out. But really the smartest thing to do is, as we're doing that, start building an emergency fund. So we don't really take every extra penny and put it toward debt. In fact, we might even begin first by developing a couple hundred dollars in the emergency fund and then start steamrolling the debt and snowballing the debt, and still contribute to that emergency fund. But we want to get up somewhere in this process, either before we really get hard on the debt, or while we're beginning our quest to eliminate the debt, $1,000 in a savings account that we say, this is my emergency fund. So you're driving home from work, and you feel the car going, dum, 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 and you, you get out, and you have a flat, and you're wondering what's going on, and you go in, and your front end is completely whacked out of alignment, and you're screwed. And it's going to be $750 bucks for a couple new tires and to fix the caster and camber of the front end of the car. And you don't really understand that, but you know you got to do this because you need your car to get to work, and now you got $750 that you you, you got to pay. You've been paying down a debt. Now you go you put $750 back on that credit card, and it immediately begins to work against you with compounding interest in the wrong direction. So we put $1,000 into our emergency fund, which gets us through most, not all, of these types of emergencies at least the immediate requirement against them. So we go to that emergency fund, we pay it off, and we just go back to paying the minimum or a little bit extra on that one debt and the minimum on all the rest of this, and we start stockpiling money in that emergency fund until it's back to a grand, and then we go back to hammering. I mean, we're selling so many things, the kids think they're next, right? They, like, they think we're going to take them to the pawn shop. We're eating rice and beans, and when we get tired of rice and beans, the next night we have beans and rice for variety. That's what we're doing to get out of this hole. And eventually we pay that debt off. Now we begin a solid investment of 10% of our income, plus we continue with basic savings. And we you know, all the stuff John said that goes with that. Now, once this occurs and you have $10,000 or $12,000 in, 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 in savings outside of your long-term investments, you don't need a separate place with a $1,000 emergency fund anymore. And this is one of those things that I think John and I and people like us get to the point where we kind of feel like that's implied, but we don't really say it, and maybe people don't understand that, and they think, well, I still need this place with a thousand or two thousand, or you know, maybe I'm 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 doing much better now, so I can have like a twenty five hundred dollar emergency fund. All of that money should be in what you would call your 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 cash accessible savings, and there's things you can do to increase your interest yield on that. So if you had forty thousand dollars outside of your retirement, and I know that sounds insane. But you might, and you wanted to do better with your interest, you might keep ten thousand of it in a standard savings account of some sort, or you know, so maybe some with a little higher yield. And then you might keep ten thousand dollars in a you might put ten thousand dollars in a three year C D and put ten thousand dollars in a two year C D and ten thousand dollars in a one year C D. That's called a laddered C D savings. Which it means that You, because you have, if you do need to dip into any of that money, you have to pay a penalty to get your money out of the CD. And you might lose some accumulated earnings. But at any one period of time, you have a full 25% of that money that's immediately liquid. And the furthest away from being liquid any of the other money could be is one year. If you needed the money the day after you set that up, the other 25% is only 364 days from that CD becoming the maturity. When that CD reaches maturity, 
because you get a better interest rate if you do. Now, if there's not enough interest spread, you put it all in one-year CDs or maybe even six-month and, and, and 12-month CDs so that you keep that laddering effect. But if it's worth doing up to three years, then you take that money that comes out the other end at the maturity of that CD, you take it plus its interest, and you put it in a three-year CD. Because now you have a three-year, a three-year, and a two-year, but you have a three-year expiring in three years. You have a three-year expiring in two years. You have a two-year expiring in one year. When the two-year expires, you know what you do. You turn it into a three-year. Now you have three three-year CDs, but every CD is coming to maturity every year and being reinvested. So you have that opportunity to reallocate that money or some portion thereof every 12 months. And you could again, you could stagger it so it would be every six months. And even you could have got creative with how you did it. You could stagger it so it's coming due every six months, but you eventually end up with all the money in 36-month high-yield CDs, four CDs anyway. There's lots of ways you can do it. There are banks now that offer CDs that you have during the term of the CD one opportunity to lock in a new interest rate if the interest rates go up, which right now we're in a trend with interest rates going up. So there's lots of ways to save your money, but what's truly an emergency fund needs to be immediately liquid And once you actually have your debt paid off and your savings are significant, let's say several thousand dollars or more, you no longer need a place that's just for emergencies. That savings account is, if that's the best place for your money, then you keep your thousand dollars that's emergency with your other thousands of dollars that are for long-term savings. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, with that, let's, uh, let's take a question now for Gary Collins on probiotics and building them up, and specifically for nursing mothers. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of The Simple Life Now. Make sure, dot com. Make sure to go check out my new website and my new uh, The Simple Life book series. Uh, today's question, as Jack has already read, I'm sure it sounds pretty simple on the surface, But it opens up a can of worms, and especially in, in my world, far as how I think. And, and you guys hear me talk about false prophets, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But when it comes to if you've been uh, hospitalized or been treated that with antibiotics or, or things that could wipe out your gut bacteria, as far as, you know, she's obviously breastfeeding from the question, and the main concern is kombucha, but we'll get into that a little later. Same things, you know, you can take a low dose probiotic, very low dose, you know, don't go for the mega dose, uh, therapeutic kind of uh, line, make sure it's low dose, uh, you know, the easiest way, you know, organic yogurt, kefir, uh, you know, sauerkraut, all the typical fermented food basics. Um, just again, you don't, don't eat it three times a day, every day. If you're healthy, you only need to eat fermented foods a couple times a week or, you know, take a probiotic every other day. You're fine. Um, it's just that today we're not exposed to that beneficial bacteria like we were, you know, back in the day when we were more dirty, um, that bacteria sticks to your skin, you absorb it, all that kind of good stuff. We've talked about that in the past, but With the kombucha article that was attached to the email that was sent to me, I opened up a whole can of worms. It was from a, a website of a lady who is a birthing and lactation consultant, from what I could gather. Um, very thin on education and experience. But uh, her credentials, internationally board certified lactation consultant. 
and international certified childbirth educator. I, I, I think I've heard of the second one, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but I definitely never heard of the first one. Uh, what I went to the website, obviously do my research, read the article. The article is garbage. Um, she knows absolutely nothing about health from what I could gather. She's wearing a doctor's coat to act like she's a doctor, yet I don't see BS. Oh, master, I see nothing. I see a couple remote courses taken from UCSD, which could be anything. I'm from San Diego. UCSD is University of California, San Diego. I'm guessing that's what it is. But you don't know. I would have spelled it out for people who may not know what UCSD is. That's just me. Um, but the article talks a couple things about lactic acid buildup in individuals who drink kombucha. And that one died, I believe. I'd have to go back. I, it was garbage. Um, but many other health factors were going on probably besides the kombucha or the kombucha tea could have been... They could have had something in it. We don't know. Or they could have had an allergic reaction. We don't know. That happens to all kinds of products every single day. I mean, uh, and she talks about that it, kombucha releases toxins. That to- Those toxins end up in your breast milk. And people who don't know what they're talking about use the word toxins a lot because it makes them sound smarter. And I think that's what she was doing. Your body is toxic at all levels. Everything in your body is considered toxic. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, it's just one of those things. Um, our bodies are always removing things that are harmful, i.e., I guess you could say toxins, the easiest way to put it. I just did it. Oh no, Gary. Um, so you're always, you're always in, in, do, in ingesting, absorbing tox, things that can be chemically, let's use chemically destructive, let's say, or maybe not, maybe not health beneficial. Maybe that sounds a little better. And th- that is going on in your body all the time. Uh, I don't think kombucha, I do agree with one part. She does say kombucha is not a miracle. You know, they claim miracles. It's a great way to sell product. I agree with that. Kombucha is just a fermented tea. That's it. Pretty basic. Been around for 2000 plus years that we know of, you know, but her saying that kombucha is a no go period while, uh, breastfeeding is, I don't know. I'd like to hear, I may have to listen to if Doc Bones answers this question, but that's my feeling because let's face it, she talks about hydrating in order to uh, offset the toxin release that gets into your bloodstream. Well, water can be toxic. More people have died from overconsumption of water and water intoxication or water toxemia than they have of kombucha. I'm pretty positive on that one. And that water uh, toxemia is when you have uh, overabundance of, of water, liquid, and uh, not enough electrolyte to counterbalance. And some people are hypersensitive to that. Some, many people have died. <laughs> so water drinking contest, people have died from that. So again, the internet is filled with bad information. You have to be careful. You go down these rabbit holes. You start reading all this information. Again, everyone's a health expert, and 99.9999% of them aren't. They don't know anything. Zero. And this person's background in health, from what I can tell, is a zero. It doesn't, nothing. So be careful. Be careful. I would, if it sounds kind of crazy, it probably is crazy. I hope that helps. That was a little long-winded but uh, like I said, the article attached kind of threw it in a 
totally different direction. And I know his wife is in these, uh, these mother's groups and breastfeeding groups. And again, that's going to roll right into health. And you're going to hear every opinion known to man and woman on people who should not be given opinions. So I hope that helps. And remember, guys, make sure to check out the new book series, The Simple Life, and also available on Amazon, my website. I've had a lot of emails. You buy it on my website if you want. I greatly appreciate it. Um, a lot of people have. But it's on Amazon if you want to get, an, you know, I saw versions. And I'm almost MSB member. You get 10% off and free shipping on your orders. Take care. Okay, as I said, I'm, I'm batting cleanup with two today because one's going to be pretty short because I don't know. The guy to ask the question may not really like my answer, but I'm going to be real basic with it and say, well, I probably wouldn't even do that. So this comes from William in Tennessee, and basically his question is he's looking for raw land and a place to basically buy like a hunting cabin or a bug out location or whatever. And he's thinking about, you know, he has some guns, some nicer guns that he likes, and it'd be nice to be able to go out there and not have to bring, uh, one less thing is having to bring guns with you. Or if you, you ended out there kind of on short notice, there'd be some guns there and some ammo there. And maybe, of course, if you had a cabin, you wouldn't store it right in the cabin. Or if somebody broke in, maybe you'd create a cache or something like that for yourself. This is a well-known thing and, and a well-practiced thing. And a well probably talked about more than practiced in the world of survivalism and prepping, especially those that think a little bit more toward the Red Dawn zombie scenario and stuff like that. And William's really not coming from there, but it's always, you know, you never know what's going to happen. It might be good to have some guns uh, out at the, 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 the bug out location or the hunting cabin. And I'm going to say in general, I am actually not a big fan of this idea. Uh, I see guns as an asset. Even inexpensive cheap guns are an asset. They are actually a fairly liquid asset. They're not as liquid as cash. But in general, you can go to any pawn shop in America with anything from an old single-shot shotgun to a brand-new AR-15 and get a portion of its general value almost instantly. You can also borrow against it if you had to. And, and then they have the other utilities that they provide for self-defense, etc. So I, I am not exactly really big on the idea of taking even a cheap 870 shotgun, sticking it in a PVC tube and burying it in a hole in the ground so that I can have a stash that I can run off to if the Illuminati come to get me or something like that. Or even just so it's there. Like, I don't actually see it as that much of a burden to transport a shotgun or a rifle or one of each and a handgun with me when I go to uh, a vacation cabin. Where this could change, if I had a location where it was far enough away that the best bet for me to get there was an aircraft, and there are people that that just works out for them, and it, it's worth it to them to have that getaway, even though it involves renting a car or something like that, or maybe, you know, maybe even they know someone that they can borrow a vehicle from or pay less than they would to a rental car to use a vehicle while they're there. Um, in that instance, the pain in the ass that is checking baggage with guns, especially if it's multiple guns, maybe I'd be a little bit more open to this, and maybe my my answer gets framed a little bit in that, that's, that way. That said, I'm not a big fan of having a liquid asset that's easily sold outside of my control, with minimal security, which no matter what you do, that's what you have if you stash a gun somewhere. I'm also not about large amounts of legal liability. So it's very possible that even though you have all your signs up that stay, stay the F out, you have barbed wire and freaking Claymore mines trying to keep people out, 
giant you know billboards that say you don't come here if you and, and you buried a gun somewhere that was actually very hard to find and no one has any business there if a couple teenagers find it and one of them is an idiot and shoots the other one that you'll get sued successfully because of, because of a litigious society that we live in so i'm going to i'm going to add that to my reasons not to do this if i were going to do this though i would probably say well what is the thing that makes it the most likely that I can do anything that I need to do? The answer to that is a shotgun. What is the best value in a shotgun as far as full, complete utility? A pump shotgun. An 870, uh, a Mossberg 500, a kind of an old recycled, uh, maybe need a little TLC Winchester Model 12. Uh, if it's a 20-gauge, maybe a, a Model 120, you know, something like that. Uh, you could pick these up at gun shows. And I have picked up some nice ones. I picked up ones that are 25 years old, look like they ain't had a box of shells in them for under $300. Uh, it'll, it, it, it's not a takedown gun, but you know it's, it's generally a thumb screw and the barrel pops off and it's fairly compact. And I would start with a shotgun of the pump variety. Uh, as far as the gun adapter stuff, that's going to be you on a double barrel or a single barrel break action. I like them. I think they're fun, but I would go get something like a Midland Backpacker, and I would keep that with me because there's your transportation problem. A Midland Backpacker and a handful of, uh, of different adapters and some ammo, and it fits in a, a case that doesn't look like a gun case and goes behind the seat of a truck, and, and that's everywhere you go. So unless I'm getting on an airplane, I probably am not stashing that. I'm with the pump shotgun. I'm going to set up a variety of ammunition, everything from large shot sizes for things like waterfowl and turkeys down to bird shot for things like squirrels and doves and grouse and pheasant or whatever's available in the area, and a good assortment of slugs. And, and now I have one gun that's not ideal for big game hunting, but I can shoot an elk with it or I can shoot a squirrel with it. And, and that gives me the most utility. If I want to add on to that utility, then I'm going to look to an inexpensive, probably bolt-action, old like a Model 25 Marlin 22. I'm going to throw, for this purpose, I'm going to go get something like a Simmons 4x4 scope, uh, or what are the Simmons 22 Magnum scope with 4x4 rings. The rings and the scope together are going to cost you maybe $60. The rings are almost as much as the scope. The Simmons 22 Mag scope is not a high-end scope. I think it sells for about $30 if I remember right, like that's $30 or $40, but it's a damn good scope for a 22 fixed 4 power. So I'm going to throw that on top of some 22, and that's going to be, and then the next thing I would add is a low-cost, Bolt action center fire, a 308, a 243, whatever you can find, a 306 that is a good hunting gun. And I think if you actually really focused on it, you could get all that done, not with the ammo, but for 500 bucks. And I would come up with a damn good way to hide it, and I would not put them all in one place. They would each have their own hiding place. So if one was compromised, the others would still be there. I would probably do some sort of an in-the-floor storage if I had a cabin. Um, it's probably the best. So you can, you can set that up to where it's almost impossible to find, and then you can do something like um, with like smaller stuff, you can get like a strong box and chain it to the, the floor, inside the floor, right? So it's, it's, it's like basically chained and bolted and very difficult to get out and then very difficult to find. Um, 
I, I don't, in general, like this idea. I want to say that one more time. I'm not advocating you do this. These are the three guns that I would put aside. And then, if I wanted one more thing, I would do a handgun, and I would probably do something like a high point uh, for a handgun. Uh, because you're, you're under 150 bucks brand new. And it, it's hard to beat that for this type of a, a usage. But I wouldn't, one more time, I wouldn't do this. I might be compelled to do this again if I had a vacation property that I went to frequently where I got, let's say I found a place where I get round trip airfare for 120 bucks and it's a two hour flight or less. And it lets me buy a piece of land that I otherwise wouldn't be able to get. I, I, I might do this, but I'd have to really think about it. I'd have to do some real soul searching. On that note, William did mention he found uh, 47 acres for 25000 in Tennessee that he cannot purchase right now for one reason or another, and asked if I'd share it because it's a pretty good deal, and it sounds like a good deal, and I have a link in the show notes to that if you're in Tennessee and want to check that out. Um, next question I have comes from Emily. And Emily's asking an aquaponics question on wicking beds, it's specifically deep wicking beds. She says, Hi, Jack, do, you, do deep wicking beds clean water from fish and aquaponics systems? I run a small aquaponics system just for fun, food, and learning until I can buy land. I started with four expanded clay bellet beds in my old apartment. I am now moving apartments and looking into deep wicking beds, and they sound awesome. However, I'm doing everything on small scale. I don't want my fishes to die. I can't figure out how deep wicking beds clean the water for fish. I understand how this works if the roots are in the water and filter it, but how does this work without the roots and the water touching? Thank you, Emily. Well, here's the thing. What, what people generally think is that the majority of the waste are removed from the system by the plants, and they're not. The wastes are broken down in the nitrite-nitrate cycle, nitrate-nitrite cycle, and that is primarily done by bacteria. The bacteria convert the nitrates to nitrites, and then the plants absorb the nitrates as nitrogen and use them to grow. And that ends up in the water. And the, the, the thing that any kind of a media bed really does is it provides a home for your bacteria. And if you think about something like one piece of lava rock, the amount of surface area on that lava rock with all those pores is massive. To where that one lava rock has the surface area of probably the room you're sitting in. I know that sounds insane, but if you think about, think about, just think about it on, a, on a single dimension or the two dimensions, a lake. So you got a lake, and let's say that lake, instead of being like a round pond, it's a small pond, but it's, the, the, the shoreline is very jagged. It goes in and out and in and out with like fjords and peninsulas all the way around it. And if we went just around that lake, let's say it would have a, a circumference of, let's say, a thousand feet. It's very possible that if that shoreline juts in and out, in and out, it might have a shoreline of uh, 10,000 or 20,000 feet if it's, if it's got enough weird, quonky back and forth edges. All right, now, take that lake and think about the three dimensions of it and what's the total surface area if it's really deep and it has a lot of ups and downs in it. That's what a lava rock's like on steroids. It's like a little asteroid. And all those holes and in and out. and all. So there's a, a huge place for the bacteria to live in lava rock. The pebbles I like, but I don't like using the pebbles all the way to the bottom. I like capping with pebbles or expanded shale. I like lava rock for a good uh, 50 to 70% of the depth of a ebb and flow bed. 
And for a wicking bed, there's no reason to spend money on anything other than big, heavy, clunky lava rock that's really well draining. So when you are using a deep wicking bed, here's the, it depends. Are you taking the water to the wicking bed and then using something like a float valve to maintain the level? In that instance, it's not a lot of help to the health of the system because the water goes there and is used. And then you have to keep adding water, which you're going to have to do anyway, and I'll explain why in a minute and why that's actually a good thing. But the water never returns. The deep wicking beds, the way I've designed them in my videos, water comes into the wicking bed. It fills up to a certain level. Generally, I go seven inches of lava rock. At the top of the lava rock, there's an overflow stand-up pipe with a media exploder. The water fills from the bottom, flows through the rocks, and then goes down the overflow and returns to the reservoir in the system. And it's constantly cycling through there. It's not cycling like an ebb and flow with up and down and up and down, but it is moving through. That entire bed of rocks is a biological filtration system. Now, the plants have roots in the dirt, and the water is being wicked up out into the dirt, and the plants are absorbing that water and the associated nutrient, and surplus nitrogen from that water. So it's really the same sort of process that's in an ebb and flow bed. It just happens mechanically a little bit differently. And one of the things that surprises people, when you have a system with several or more deep wicking beds, in especially the summer months, how much water that system uses. It makes a lot of sense, really, to, and I'm trying to get this done in all my systems now, to plumb a float valve into the reservoir, assuming you can do that, because you don't have to do dechlorination, so that as water levels drop, it's constantly refilling. Because I am probably adding in my biggest system right now somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 gallons of water a day to top that system off every day. Because there's, there's 12 deep wicking beds in there. And as that water flows through, it's not just what the plants are using. Think about how much moisture that, you know, if you've got a 24-inch bed and you got seven inches of rock, and really you're leaving it a couple inches from the surface, so you're at like 20 inches, then you have, you know, what, 13 inches of soil? Good hydro hydroscopic soil that loves water. There's a ton of water in every bed just in the soil, plus whatever the plants use, plus whatever evaporates. So that's taking nutrient with it as it goes, as you're replacing water. That said, my belief is the healthiest aquaponic systems use all three of the primary methods, a deep water, an ebb and flow, and a deep wicking. And the deep water doesn't have to actually be a dedicated deep water thing. Your reservoir itself can be deep water of some kind, even with just floating plants, if you can make that work depending on how you design your system. And you, it's the one you need the least is the deep water. But I will never build an aquaponic system with zero ebb and flow. The one I'm building right now is going to have eight four-foot by four-foot wicking beds. I mean, those are wicking beds the size of a person's, you know, a typical backyard little four-foot by four-foot raised bed. And that's a lot of wicking bed. And I still have two 50-gallon ebb and flow beds on the backside of it. Because it's so good for the health of the system. Because you get the, the biological filtration all the way up and all the way down. It's not just the plants. It's all that rock, all that media. And that, as that ebb and flow happens, you get that double type of filtration. And when you get that dump, you get a massive amount of oxygen added to your system. 
So if you're going to migrate from ebb and flow as your primary growing method over to deep wicking, I think it's a fantastic idea. Everything is easier when we're growing in soil. We can make compost and add it as a fertility bump. We can mulch. We buffer pH. We can grow anything in soil because it's soil. However, at least one ebb and flow bed. At least one ebb and flow bed. And you mentioned deep wicking beds. I want to kind of throw something out here too. So this year I've experimented making wicking beds out of the 50-gallon versus 100-gallon Rubbermaid tubs. And I have to say it's not going well. It's not going horribly, but most of them that I have now, what I'm doing is I go out in the mornings, I turn the water on until it starts to dump out the bottom, and I shut it off for the rest of the day, and I do it again in the evening. The, what's happened is it's so shallow that even with weed block or perlite, whatever, the roots are getting down into the rock and causing a flow obstruction where if I try to leave it running, even on a trickle, you end up with it back flooding and not being able to move the water quick enough. And that is ruining the entire concept I just explained of having a flow-through wicking bed and getting filtration. Since I have other things like ebb and flow and waterfall and stuff like that going in those systems, it's not a problem, but it doesn't work well. I have not found that shallow wicking beds work. We need deep wicking beds. I'm going to say 18 inches is kind of your minimum depth, and then adjust your rock accordingly. And what I found, again, that works the best is a double layer of weed blocker and then two inches of perlite and then your soil mix. And, and the beds I've built that way have never, not once, had a problem that was related to the underlayment. Now, I've had things like your downspout or whatever get roots in them, and that's generally pretty easy to fix. But the rock itself has worked flawlessly for multiple seasons. So that's kind of where I'm at with it now. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up another show. Hope you enjoyed it and the variety in today's show. Uh, I had a guy remark yesterday when I was like, I went off on like the Second Amendment and rights and privileges and basically like, the government and the left need to understand that if you, if you push us far enough on the right, we will jack you up. There is, like, we are the most, the right is the peaceful people in America. We do not turn over cars. We do not set buildings on fire. We are not the people that cause problems. And I, I, and I say we, I am not, I don't consider myself right. I consider myself to be politically agnostic, right? I am, or actually, I'm a political atheist. Uh, I'm an agorist, libertarian, anarcho capitalist, is the best way to describe me. So I would prefer, I have plenty of problems with the right uh, from a political standpoint. However, when it comes to, fundamental individual rights and liberties, I identify more with the right. When it comes to social liberties, then I identify more with the left. A classic libertarian, right? But when it comes down to rational sanity, the right makes a lot more sense to me. When it comes down to not being violent, and the, the left always you know, it calls the, the right Nazis, the right is the nonviolent side. However, the right is the side and I'm going to throw in the libertarians, the anarchists, etc., with the right in this one way that is armed and trained and ready to defend our liberties. And so I said that, like, if you push things far enough, there is a point where this group of people that you always say are the problem will become your problem and you don't want it. I was pretty forceful. And then I'm like, now let's talk about plum trees. And the guy said, the guy loved that. He's like... You, we will jack your shit up if you mess with us. Now let's talk about plum trees. And he's like, he'll laugh out loud or whatever after that. And I, I put in there, 
uh, and this is a quote from uh, the movie Gladiator, are you not entertained? Right? So that's what we try to do with our variety is, is we are, are you not entertained? We have investing, we have growing food, we have guns. Like We try to be the most variety-centric show on the planet with what we cover. And education, entertainment, self-reliance, individualism, you know, liberty, freedom, and being able to think for yourself, right? So I, I hope you, you get that out of today's show. And if you do and you want to support us, then the easy way is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You see all the products that I've reviewed on Amazon, uh, all the stuff that I recommend because I use it, I own it, I've bought it, I've purchased it. But if you go there first, no matter what you buy, if you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That means you can support us with no real direct expense. But my recommendations are solid, and they're solid in this world that we talk about. The one I have for you today, I've brought this thing around many times. I still think it's the best. Uh, actually, Stephen Harris loves this product, but he disagrees with me because he wants his battery backups to have a percentage of charge on them. Yeah, I don't care. Because it, it's, it, it's three, three lights, it's 75%-ish. You're not going to make decisions over 13 versus 16%. So I'm just going to say that, right? But this is the Anchor Astro E7 portable charger. This is a backup pack for like all your portable devices, your tablets, your phones, etc. The reason I love this one is multifold. First is the company. There are certain companies that I know if I recommend their product and you get a bad one and you contact them, they're like, we are so freaking sorry, here's a new one, don't even worry about the one that we sent you that screwed up. We don't want it back, it's our fault, we're sorry, here's a new one, please don't say we suck, we love our customers, here's a new one, please don't say we suck. Among those companies, eTech City and Anchor are at the top. That's why there's so many products I recommend from them. And Anchor's better than eTech City when it comes to that. eTech City's damn good. So the company is going to stand behind this device. Period. You, I don't care what it is. If it's electronic, you can get a DOA. They will fall over themselves and tell you they're so sorry. Here's a new one. The next is capacity. 26,800 milliamp hours. That's enough to charge an iPhone 10 times or an iPad Air two and a half times or like a Samsung S6 seven times. What does that mean? That means in a full-on blackout, you can't even charge from your car. All your end-loop batteries were eaten by the zombies. All you have is your iPhone and your Anker Astro E7. You can go at least if you are, you know, you're not out like playing video games and shit easy two weeks and stay in communication with people. That's amazing. You, you pair it up with the chargers that I recommend as far as for your car. You keep it in your car, plugged in at all times. You plug your phone into it, and it's always there and always ready to go. It's awesome. Check it out, the Anker Astro E7. There are cheaper battery backups available on Amazon. There are none that are as good for the money with the capacity. Four and a half stars overall. Good ratings on fake spots, so they're not fake reviews. Uh, th literally thousands of reviews. Literally hundreds of these bought by my audience. And if people have problems with shit that I recommend, I hear about it. Quickly. And a lot. Complaints on this thing, been recommending it for two years. Zero. I'm confident that the way technology evolves, that sooner or later... Anchor or another company will come out with a product that I will see as superior to this one. But for two years now, it has not happened yet. I own this. I use this. I recommend this. 
Comms are imperative in a disaster. This keeps you running for a week to two weeks. If you're smart, maybe longer with this alone without even having the ability to recharge. And if you do what we teach, you should be able to recharge things like this and your small batteries, etc., infinitely with a, a five-gallon can of gas and a car and an inverter, right? So you should be good for months. But if you have to bug out, if you have to go somewhere, if you have to be on the trail, wherever it is, this is the one you want. It's not tiny, but that's because it has to have the capacity. It's a, a little bit longer than an iPhone and a little bit thicker than an iPhone. Totally worth it. Totally worth it. Um, I've been remote where I've had my phone, my MacBook, and this, and I've been able to work using the phone as a hotspot for the MacBook and, and get through a week without having power. That's how badass it is. You've got to be smart to do that, but I assume you're smart. That's why you listen to the Survival Podcast and do your shopping where tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. I, I don't know. I think maybe John Adam tried to adjust this so that this song would have come the day before I left for the vacation and got confused about what my vacation was. Because this song is like, per like this song, like that. Now I love this song, and it's hurting my heart that last week I was on Sanibel, and now I'm listening to this now. It's by the Zach Brown Band, and it's called the Island Song. It's a great song for a Friday. You know, I'm going to make up some mojitos for Nick and I tonight, and uh, my wife, and we'll we'll try to live island life here. We're going to cook some uh, awesome uh, pork and uh, tri-tip from Butcher Box. And uh, have some good adult beverages and hang out with a good friend. And, and, and this will be the mode we're going for. But, man, I didn't have to try hard a week ago. A week ago, I was in this mode fully. There's no deep message to this song other than, you know, sometimes it's good to get away. And when you can't get away, get away in your mind. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you to everyone that listens to and shares this show with other people. Without you, it would not be possible for us to have been here a year now. Check us out. Share us with other people. Again, I appreciate you all so much. Have an awesome weekend. Uh, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Did anybody here pass me a beer? And I'm going to keep playing this music that you hear. And if you know the song, you come and sing along with me. Walking with the beach to my left, seat to my right, and I'ma get faded at the tiki bar tonight. Then I'ma rolling up like my name is Bob. Yeah, I'm gonna party like I'm a Jamaican. If you really wanna know where you can find me, I'll be unwinding down in the islands, down in the islands, yeah, sure. Track of your timing Grab a drink beside me Down in the islands Down in the islands Could anybody here Pass me the rum And we could find somebody who the steel drums, and if you like this beat, then everybody dance with me. We got the ladies to the left, fellas to the right, and everybody's faded at the tiki bar tonight. And we are gonna dance to the rhythm of the waves, 
while we drink Bacardi by the bonfire flames. If you really want to know where you can find me, I'll be unwinding down in the islands, down in the islands. Yeah, sure. Lose track of your timing. Grab a drink beside me. Yo 